Today I welcome Matthew Parr, principal at the Nagoya International School in Japan. In this episode, I discuss the International Baccalaureate program, international education, the possibility of designing a curriculum for use across the world, and the impact of COVID-19 on global partnerships. You've touched on your, obviously, how you got into teaching, what was your interest. You're now in your 11th year at NIS. This goes against a lot of what we know about staff recruitment at international schools, where teachers maybe stay for a couple of years and then move on. Why have you stayed so long? I feel a real connection to this community. I'm a kind of big believer in, you know, if you feel connected and you feel that you're still adding value, and other people agree, and you're basically sort of happy and connected and you feel like you're adding value, then it's good to stay. I also believe if those don't become true, you know, if you feel that, you know, you're no longer adding value, you know, you're no longer connected, then it's time to move on. You know, so I don't think there's any kind of magical better to stay longer. It's better to stay shorter. I think good teachers, good leaders stay in tune with, you know, your context, your situation, what you're able to achieve, what you're able to do, what you're not able to do, what you're not able to do. And you make your decisions around that, right? And I think here, you know, so far, so good. There's always been a new challenge. There's always been something new to do. It's a fantastic school. You know, we've really started to think in my early days as head, you know, who are we? Who do we serve? Who do we want to be? You know, we kind of grew that. We grew that out into a vision, into a plan that led to curriculum changes, which are exciting. That led to building and development, a new staffing strategy, your identity as an inclusive school and what that means. You know, so that was really exciting and invigorating. And then, of course, we had COVID and that's a whole new set of challenges. There's always been something. Yeah. And did you always set out to kind of stay in one place? You know, we talk about when you go and teach abroad. I mean, it tends to be on a short term contract. But I think actually, you know, the more and more teachers and the more and more leaders I've spoken to, not many people actually do stay for two years. They go there and they fall in love with the place, the culture, the people and go. Because if you said 11 years ago, you're going to be there for 11 years, you probably wouldn't have gone. It's that not knowing I want to try something different. What made you start teaching abroad initially? Yeah, I'm very boring compared to a lot of people. I mean, I've really been UK and Japan. And I came to Japan first off, you know, on the real story, it was actually almost almost by accident. And I came first of all teaching on the JET program, which is Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. And I was basically in my last year at uni, you know, didn't get up to leave the lecture theatre when we should. I was just sitting there at the back chatting with some friends. And then we noticed that there was this other event sort of happening around us. And there was a presentation to go and teach in public schools, you know, public junior, junior high and, and high schools in Japan teaching English. And, you know, I just sort of sat there, thought, well, you know, I, I wanted to be a teacher and this wasn't exactly the music teaching, but it looked pretty cool. And it was Japan. And so I stayed along with my friends. And actually, we all then ended up applying for the program. A couple of you know, two of us got, got in. And, and so I was posted to Japan and I did two years teaching English in junior high schools. And I just, you know, loved it, loved the country, fell in love, didn't get married at that point, but fell in love. And then went back to the UK, taught music, stayed there, lived there, worked there for a while. And then just thought, you know what, Japan just seems to call. So there was a music job in Japan, took it, went back. And I've been back to the UK in between, you know, for different reasons. It's been a sort of pattern in that sense. But basically, it's been either the UK or Japan for me. Having said that, to go to your earlier question, been here a long time now in, in this school, 11 years. And I was another school in Japan for almost as long before that as well. So it's a long, long time in Japan. We've never said as a family, you know, it's Japan forever. You know, we've always got bicultural kids, always thought it'd be great to take them and, and show them another part of the world and help them to kind of explore their global citizenship. So it's never been like we're going to live in Japan. It's just literally been what I've said before, always felt a connection to the schools, always felt that there's you know more to do, hopefully always felt that, you know, there's more ways to serve. And provided that the school continues to agree that that's the case, it's good to stick around. So 
Yeah, we're very much open to future possibilities and future directions. But right now, you know, this is a great place to be. And, you know, I'm still learning a lot by being here and, and I hope still adding value to the school and to the kids that come here every day. And what do you think are the main differences between UK schools and international schools, but particularly where you are in Japan? I mean, again, that's a hard question for me because I've been out of the UK system for such a long time now. I think there obviously are core differences, but I think the similarities are stronger than the differences in education globally. If you go back to what is education, right, in in its earliest sense, this idea of sitting around the campfire, it's a group, it's a community sitting around the campfire and the elders are explaining to the younger generation, you know, these are the stories that are important to be successful in our community. You know, these are the pearls of wisdom. These are the things to be excited about. These are the things to be scared of and to avoid. This is the way that we interact with each other. I mean, that's education, right? It's sitting around the campfire sharing stories. And so all you have now is the question, well, who's around your campfire? So obviously, you know, if you're working in the UK, those are the kids that are sitting around your campfire. If you've got kids here in Japan, these are the kids sitting around our campfire. So the differences in my mind are really around, you know, who are those kids that you're serving and what are the promises you make in terms of that service? You know, what is the kind of curriculum the kind of learning that you promise to deliver for those kids that choose to have them sit around your campfire. But other than that, you know, the big drivers are the same. You know, it's about, you know, what are the dispositions? What are the key understandings, the important knowledge that goes with that? What are the skills that need to be developed to be successful in today's world? And do you have more control over the curriculum and the things that you teach? I think so. I think that's probably going to be a difference. And you often find that, right? I mean, a lot of national, again, if you go back to the campfire analogy, you know, it's the elders of the community that decide what the stories are, right? So if you are in a, in a country, then a national system, basically a national curriculum is the elders deciding these are the important stories. And so, you know, you're going to find that and some countries are going to be a little bit more rigorous and top down about the important stories than others. Being an international school with the IB frameworks in particular, you know, there is a lot of latitude for choice around, you know, what is the illustrative content that we want to engage our learners with. There's a lot of flexibility to build curriculum around our learners and, you know, where they come from and how they're seeing the world. So I think that's probably true. I think we probably have a lot more flexibility in terms of the the nuts and bolts of the curriculum than the UK. Obviously, you know, legal frameworks, legislation, obviously, you know, that's different. You know, we're, we're accountable to Japanese law. That obviously has implications in terms of how we run a school versus a school in the UK. But again, from the learners, from the child's experience, that's really an irrelevance, you know, for the child. They're just showing up at the campfire to hear the stories, right? I mean, being part of an international school, you have an international outlook. You're a real advocate for schools working together too. And you're currently the president of the Japan Council of International Schools. Why should competing schools work together? Oh gosh, why shouldn't they? I get competition and it's no bad thing. You know, it's no bad thing. It it keeps us all sharp. You know, it keeps us with our game, right? It's, you know, who do we serve? How do we serve them? There's absolutely no bad thing, you know, and looking at how your neighbors are doing and how they're doing and thinking, you know, we could learn something from that. That's not a bad thing, but I don't see that as being, it sounds odd, but the idea of competition is not in competition with the idea of being collaborative because there is so much that we can learn from each other. And I also think it's a sign of, of confidence that you can you know, have competitors, yet also have the strength of belief in what you do, such that you're able to collaborate with one another. And I think we're very fortunate in Japan you know, that we've got some terrific schools here in the Japan Council of International Schools. And they're all very kind of confident in who they are and who they serve. You know, this is what we do. This is what we do well. This is our promise to parents. This is our mission. This is our vision. These are our core values. You know, and we're confident in that. And if we're confident in that, we know that the kids... And the families that are going to be happy and will enjoy that, you know, they're going to come to us. And the kids that are going to be confident and happy and enjoy something else, you know, they're going to go to one of our great competitors who offer something different. 
So I think, you know, if you've got schools that are really comfortable and confident in who they are, who they serve and how they do that, you know, you have a healthy environment. And then you've got the freedom to collaborate so that you can all do you know, the things that you do have in common, the things that you do share um, in terms of those broader ideals of good education. You know, you can share best practices around that. We're in the learning business, right? And we know that learning is a social activity. So I think it's very hard to say that you're in the learning business, but you know, you're not going to collaborate with other people that are also in that, in that field. That doesn't sort of make so much sense to me. So during the pandemic, especially, I mean, we've really seen this. I mean, we were always a collaborative group, I would say, across Jacus. But obviously, with all the, um, all the new unknowns of, you know, how do you do learning and well-being in a pandemic, right? There was no textbook. There was no guidebook. There was no manual. Uh, you know, we had to work that out for ourselves, as all schools did around the world. And the collaboration across the council has been fantastic with at the head-to-head level in terms of you know, regular check-ins and regular sharing of information and protocols and ideas, you know, sharing consultants, job likes across the group so that different teachers could get together and talk about what they're doing. It's really taken the collaboration to another level. Collaboration, I think, is essential for schools. And you know, just because you have a commercial model, the reason that you're all in it is the game of learning. You know, we're there to educate and should these young men and women. So, you know, you have a shared value set and interest. So collaborating on how to do it better and what should we be doing to educate these young men and women of today that's very different than what we were teaching maybe five years ago is hugely important. And probably the last 15 months has shown that collaboration is even more important. Do you feel that because of your connection with Jacus, that you were in a better position to be able to try new things and share and see what was going on to react to the global pandemic? Yes, absolutely. And of course, here in Japan, we were one of the first countries to you know, really know that we needed to launch online learning and have all these things ready. I mean, we had some colleagues over in China who were very helpful. And I know we were all kind of Zooming and, and Skyping with people over there to work out what they were doing. But very early, it kind of came to Japan. There wasn't a massive kind of global resource of you know, online learning frameworks, online learning tools, online well-being systems to draw upon. At that time, it was really what could we work out ourselves. You know, very quickly, you know, we were sharing, we were getting online, we were talking about what we were doing, you know, learning from each other's mistakes, learning from each other's successes, learning, you know, how do we communicate in a crisis as well, this particular kind of crisis. I mean, all of those things that all of a sudden they hit you at once when you enter new framework. Certainly, I think would speak for, you know, all the heads in the council that we all felt that we benefited and valued by knowing that we had that collaborative resource to draw upon. It wasn't just because there was a pandemic suddenly it started. You know, Jacobs has been there not just for the good times, you know, we've good collaborative and engaging discussions with each other. But anytime a school has been in a crisis, you know, there's been a tragedy in the school, which happens, right? Unfortunately, from time to time, you know, the school will say, you know, can anyone help? And other counselors will suddenly appear, you know, people will put their counselors on a train or in a car and they'll arrive at the school. So you're going to get extra counselors suddenly quickly arriving to help a school process a tragedy or something like that. So it's really been a support network that's been there. And then in terms of your know, professional development, and, you know, we've had, you know, the CIS Child Protection has, has come out and, and they've worked with Jacus, Jane Group on Communication, you know, lots and lots of things where, again, you know, one school doing that individually, okay, you learn something. But if a group of schools that have that ongoing relationship, that basis of trust and know each other, you know, you find you get much deeper in the discussions and you get much more value out of that professional development because you already know the people that you're working with and you know what you share and what you have in common. I always had in my mind, and we probably polled teenagers in the UK in terms of technology, I would have made the broad assumption that Japan would have been way ahead of anybody else when it came to online learning and technology. Would you say that that's a fair assumption or is that just consumer electronics that we kind of are used to rather than necessarily the educational implementation? 
I'm smiling because I mean, Japan is a land of paradox. You can, <laughs> you can find places here where the technology is just out of this world and it's the stuff of science fiction. You know, to give you an example, one of the biggest problems in the pandemic is even when people have been doing remote learning, you know, Japan still relies on the Hanko system, you know, which is the actual physical you know, stamping of documents in lieu of a signature. So one of the problems in the pandemic was, okay, remote learning is happening, but everything grinds to a halt because everyone needs to come into the office to get out their, their actual pen and ink Hanko and, and Hanko the paper copy. You know, we still have fax machines. It's a paradox. We actually have even had a typewriter. We have a typewriter because there's certain things we need our typewriter for. So it's a really interesting place to work and to learn and to know. And obviously, you know, what is here is, you know, good internet, good connectivity. You know, so certainly international schools, you know, we, we were able to move to very successful online learning. Your kids have good technology at home. There's good connectivity. So that all worked well. A lot of Japanese schools, it was trickier for them. You know, they were sort of sending home packages of paperwork that the kids would do, and then they would post the packages back. So yeah, no, it wasn't the sort of technological just swept in and it was all a piece of cake. AI didn't take over. The robots didn't come up and just like... The robots didn't Matthew, come in and yeah, we, just, we've just got go, this. Go, go door to door educating kids. <laughs> didn't happen. No. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. We often hear about, and you've talked about local partnerships and local partnerships are good. Lockdown, COVID, us working remotely has opened up more of this global partnerships. Have you explored that and have you seen a benefit to connecting with other schools in other parts of the world to learn new things? Very, very much so. I think, you know, what we've definitely seen in the pandemic is, you know, just as we talked about sort of the JACUS community and the local community becoming all more connected, certainly seen that globally with international education as well. Yeah, there's been, you know, global conversations online, pandemic response, you know, sort of crisis conversation, but it's gone beyond that, you know, and there's been some dialogue around the big questions in Institute. And I think the tagline is something like, I'm misquoting this, but it's something along the lines of, you know, getting back to normal, but normal wasn't that great to begin with, you know, so it's sort of having those bigger questions about, you know, what were we doing well before the pandemic's changed things? What's that new normal going to be? What are we going to take with us to the future? You know, the really sort of generative thinking, which is really exciting. And, and we should, I think all of our schools, not just in Japan, but globally, you know, you speak to schools, you know, people are saying, you know, there are some kids that we thought would do really, really well online. And maybe they didn't, you know, because once you took them outside of that structured, you know, we will make school happen to you environment, those kids, you know, struggled with the independence of that environment. And then there's some other kids who, you know, we were all worried about online because, you know, oh gosh, you know, they find it difficult to cope in school. So how are they going to do at home? And they were great. The independence, the autonomy, the different ways that they could actually plan their own learning. You know, they did great. Those kids did great, you know. And so we have to ask ourselves some of those questions that maybe, you know, we were kind of patting ourselves on the back, maybe a little bit too much before. And maybe also sort of undervaluing what kids were had potential to do, maybe because we weren't doing what we needed to do to customize and tailor the learning around them. And then you layer that on top of, you know, some of these fundamental changes in the world. You know, we're seeing the, you know, the social justice movement, Black Lives Matters. You know, we're seeing the climate crisis, democracy crisis. I mean, there's some real fundamental you know, shifts going on on top of the pandemic. You know, you put that on top of what we've learned about learning from the pandemic and actually yeah, it's not just a case that we all get a vaccine and we go back to what we were doing. We owe it to our kids to ask some of those really searching questions. And globally, very much so, I've seen that dialogue. We have to change. I mean, I've, I've always thought about this being the perfect storm to change. It's, we, we've been thrust, all of us on the planet, we've been thrust into exactly the same thing. So it's a really good opportunity for us to try new things, to fail, 
to see what works, what doesn't work, and to change education for the good. So we are making a material difference. And you talked about all these crises, all these movements, and they are right things that we need to be talking about, and they often get forgotten about. And they've just been part of us waking up and going, there is so much going on right now in the world, we need to get these things addressed. And having that global network of people that you can share these ideas with is fantastic. I want to talk about the IB. So the IB at Nagoya International, you are centered around the IB. The IB has a global outlook by design. How much does that align to your own personal education philosophy? Very much so. I mean, I think I'd start answering that question by saying, as a school, we've chosen to do the IB because we believe that the current time, you know, that is the best program out there for us to really deliver our mission and our commitment. So for us, it's, you know, who are we as a school? What are we trying to achieve? What's our promise to parents? What's our promise to kids? And then, okay, to deliver on that promise, what's the best way to do that? And when we go and look at all the different things out there, for us, it's the IB. It's not the other way around. It's not, oh, we want to be an IB school. Let's learn all about the IB and do the IB. You know, it's very much, this is who we are. This is who we serve. And the IB is the way that we can do that. We have our three I's, you know, inquire, inspire, impact. The story with those is, you know, it starts with inquiry, right? It starts with kids wondering and puzzling about the world around them. Because, you know, if you inquire about something, you get interested in it, you get excited about it. It's very different to just knowing something, right? If you're questioning, if you're asking, that's where the excitement comes. And when you start to do that inquiry, it leads to inspiration. You get inspired about the things that you're talking about. And when you get inspired, you want to know more, do more, be more. And then all of a sudden, just learning about it isn't enough anymore. You want to have some impact. You now understand this thing to the point that you can see that you want to have some impact around that, whatever that piece of curriculum is. Inquire leads to inspire, leads to impact. And it's this circle that's going round and round and round. And yeah, the IB is very big on global responsibility, global action, action and services an embedded part of that. You know, the global citizenship that is a part of how you have impact as an international school kid is very much embedded in that program. So for us, yeah, the IB is a very, very good way of us delivering on those three eyes. The other, we have a fourth eye. It's not our official eye, but we talk about this as the eye that is the umbrella that supports the others, which is include. You can't inquire, inspire and have impact unless you do that through an inclusive framework because the world is a diverse and inclusive place. And again, the IB allows us to do that. It allows us to have an inclusive approach to learning and inclusive pathways. So yeah, it's very much a, a tool that we feel works well for us. I mean, we certainly see it in international schools around the planet, more so than in the UK. And here it's still very much a misunderstood curriculum model. You only get in the independent sector and only a small proportion of the independent schools in the UK offer it. I speak to so many heads in terms about innovation, about the inquiry, the inspiration and the impact side. They all talk about that and be able to change education and make it more fit for purpose. And the IB seems to do that. What should we be doing to promote the IB more as an educational framework? I mean, I'm thinking here selfishly in the UK because I certainly know that two of my children would have benefited more so from the IB than the traditional GCSE and A-level route. Perhaps the piece, and it goes back to that question of what's the difference maybe between international education and you know, maybe a national system such as the UK, you know, it's how much control do we want to impose on the actual content that kids are being exposed to, as opposed to, you know, going the level above content and thinking about knowledge, skills, understanding and disposition. I think we can all agree that there is certain knowledge that's important in the world. Not that much of it, actually, but there is some that is absolutely central that all kids should have. But there's definitely concepts that are really important for kids, you know, conceptual understandings that are universal and transferable. There's definitely skills that are important that are universal and transferable. 
And then there's definitely dispositions to be effective in the model world, you know, through habits of mind and attitudes and approaches to learning and to life. The trouble is you clog up your curriculum with too much content, as opposed to the content being, you know, this is the content that we explore in order to acquire concepts, or this is the content that we explore in order to develop these skills. Well, this is the content that we explore in order to uh, fine tune our dispositions, right? If the content is the absolutely essential means to deliver on that higher level of curriculum, then you free up lots of capacity in classrooms for teachers to be creative and engaging with their learners, their communities. However, if you dictate all of the content that needs to be in there, then what you actually end up doing is, you know, handcuffing um, teachers to a certain extent, because then it does become a little bit the game of content coverage. You know, and if we're lucky, you know, we'll get some concepts and some dispositions and some skills out of it too, but there's a lot of content to cover. Um, and I think, you know, the IB, particularly in the PYP and the MYP, it leaves a lot of flexibility to do that. The DP, yeah, there's a lot of required content. But again, if you've had the scaffolding through the PYP and the MYP that kids get really skilled at knowing the difference between, you know, illustrative content and an actual universal concept or universal understanding, if kids understand the difference between those things, now they're set for life. Now you can throw anything at them. You can throw them an A-level syllabus, an AP syllabus, or a DP syllabus, and they'll get it because they won't anymore just be looking at the, you know, what are the content? What's the facts that I need to know and memorize? They'll be saying, now, what does that tell me about something bigger about our world and you know, my place in the world? You know, it's bigger curriculum questions that made them effective adults. And I think that's also somewhere, you know, where if a school just picks up the DP, you don't really get the full value. Because if you just look at the DP, yeah, there are some significant differences to say an A-level or an AB, but they're not as different as if you just look at the whole program and you say, what does that actually look like when kids start when they're five years old? And then you scaffold that through. That's a very different kind of learning experience to a more sort of content-based, as opposed to, I say, I guess, concept and skills-based approach to learning. If you were to look into your crystal ball and were to look maybe 20 years, 30 years in the future, do you think we'll ever get to a point where there is a standardized curriculum model that all schools could leverage and adopt and be, be judged on. And this is globally. I'm not just on about, yeah. A lot of people would have to let go of a lot of stuff for that to work, which we're not good at in education, right? If you get a curriculum review committee together, they'll end up with, you know, 20 things to add and maybe two things to take away. You know, so we're not good at letting go. I think it's exciting that idea that there's a framework, a sort of an approach to teaching and learning and inclusion and well-being. There's a sort of curriculum framework which can be adopted globally I think it's absolutely possible because I think there is this thing such as a shared humanity, common humanity, when we're educating humans, right? So if we accept the notion that there's a common humanity and we accept the schools that educate humans, then, you know, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but, but by definition, it should be possible to say, okay, this is the broad framework for what we know is effective in terms of, you know, helping children to become young adults that can be successful in the world. If you then start loading that in with, and therefore they need to study you know, differential equations in this year, and they absolutely have to study the French Revolution because it's the mother of all revolutions, then it's gone, right? Forget it. Because then um, that curriculum will not be able to be responsive to the unique needs of individual communities. And I think for education to work, it's got to be about, you know, those teachers with those kids in that setting, you know, with all of the other drivers, you know, the, the cultural, um, religious, um, racial language, you know, all of those other drivers that are going to come into that context and, and kind of impact you know, how to do that for those kids. 
at the broadest level, I would say, yes, it's possible. Whether we'll ever get there, I don't know, because we're not good at letting go of stuff in the world. We need to get better at doing that. And that's us putting the humans first. And it's, it's knowing where technology is an enabler. And we've seen that over the last 15 months. Yes, we can deliver education. Can it be delivered as well? Absolutely not. You realize that humans need social interactions. We're social beings. So this idea of it being more hybrid, where maybe I could learn something from one of your teachers and be part of your program, but you know, I could still pick and mix some other educational topics from other schools that get inspired, but I'm learning these skills. I think that has a future or a framework. But as you said, a lot of people would like that model. There's too many plates in the air to probably bring that home. Doing podcasts, they're great because we can just dream, right? You know, we can just sort of. We can sort of I love dream. dreaming. Perfect. Exactly. It's wonderful. We should do. We should do it more often. But yeah, you know, and then we go back to work with it. Okay, now we've got to really make something concrete happen for the kids showing up tomorrow. That's another thing that makes innovation in education. Um, challenging. I mean, because in some ways, if you think about it, if we're in the learning business, we should be the best at innovation. You know, we should be the best at encourage kids to be risk takers. We should be the best at it. But we're also caregivers, right? I mean, we're taking these incredibly precious young people, right? And we're entrusted with them and they only get one chance to grow up. And if we mess up their childhood because, you know, we've tried some experimental crazy, wacky new idea, and it doesn't work, you know, we've messed up those kids for life. And so I think all educators feel that sense of responsibility. And I think this is sometimes the conflict that you see in schools and that you see in education is that we all know that we need to do a better job at reaching more kids all of the time. And we all know that the sort of industrial model is changing and needs to continue to change. And that we are seeing significant changes. I don't think this sort of mass resistance to change that sometimes is painted. I think when you speak to educators, people are looking creatively. They are looking at it in innovative ways. They are seeing the way that technology is changing the way that we learn. They are seeing how you know, knowledge you know, should be more illustrative. You know, we need to go to that higher level of curriculum. That is all happening. At the same time, we're dealing with kids and they're so precious and we just need to take our duty of care and safeguard their futures as well. And I think that's always the sort of tension that's going to sit in educational reform and educational change, which is probably, to be fair, a healthy tension to have, just as long as we acknowledge it and, and work within it. Matthew, it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast. It was really inspiring. You've given me energy to get through the rest of my day. I know I could talk for many more hours on educational reform. Your passion absolutely shines through. And I know that my listeners are going to really thoroughly enjoy this podcast. Likewise, Simon, it's been a joy. It's always good to dream. So thanks for the conversation. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.